guest today on Bammer and Me is Stanley Steller, the noted photographer, uh, who I recently was introduced to and have begun to get close to, and I can't wait to hear him share bits and pieces of his life with our audience today. Stanley, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks, Mike. This just seems appropriate. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Um, what kind of upbringing did you have? Uh, a very artsy, liberal upbringing in very middle class, height of middle class Brooklyn, New York, at the height of, I don't know, Lords of Flatbush era. You know, that's where I'm from. I went to a very extremely academic high school. My parents were very open. I never really had to come out to them. They just always accepted me as how who I was. And I guess they realized when I wasn't asking girls out on dates that that wasn't who I was going to be. So it was a very arty house. My mother uh, painted at night. She liked to smoke cigarettes in the kitchen and paint oil paintings. And my father was uh, somewhat of an interior decorator. And my older brother, nine years older than me, was uh, an architectural designer, meaning he did architectural interiors. So, you know, I grew up in this house full of books, art books, Vincent van Gogh books, stuff like that. And I was always very comfortable being an arty, lonely child. Did you act on your attraction to boys as soon as you realized? Oh, you, oh you no, 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 no. I didn't. I, 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 as soon as I realized I was really young and I realized that it was something that uh, wasn't accepted and that I should keep my mouth shut about it. And I didn't really even know what it meant. Like I didn't really know what men even did with each other. I just knew I had this uh, strong need for uh, intimacy, connection with men. I was pretty much on my own always. I didn't have very many friends. Uh, I lived in an apartment house in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, in a ground floor apartment. And in all the other apartments in the building, there were no other kids. So I was pretty much by myself, even on the whole block all the time. And uh, my mother would say, why don't you go out and play? And I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know any sports. I didn't have anyone to teach me how to bowl. You know, somebody recently said to me, hey, didn't your father teach you how to bowl? And I went, are you kidding? Really? Your father taught you how to bowl? Really? Well, lucky you. Uh, so when I didn't know what to do with myself as a child, as a boy in Flatbush, I'd pretty much go up to the roof of the apartment house by myself and sit there and daydream. You know, I mean, I had a very strange childhood, I guess. It, you know, wasn't full of friends and wasn't full of fun, really. And I started, that's when I started looking at magazines and pictures in magazines and that was you know it was the early days of television and images commercial images televised images all became part of my consciousness and awareness and and i they became my friends the very idea it's interesting i I'll, and this is sort of 
taking it into another sphere. But I realize now that when I'm looking at Instagram and I scroll and I scroll and I scroll, and it's exactly the same process as Stanley the boy turning pages of a magazine. And that kept me going forever. You know, so what was going to be the next thing I was going to see? I, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any close male friends. I had one uncle, thank God, who actually loved me and did things with me and took me places. He even gave me my allowance because my father was avoid all information and contact. My father just did not know how to be a father. He had no father and he didn't know how to be a father. So my uncle... um saved my life in a lot of ways. I think I'm sane at all because of him and things that he gave me and instilled in me uh, just by the luck of having this guy. But in a way, your visual outlook on the world came by default. Yes, absolutely. Right, right. And my uncle is who gave me my first camera. And I was about 10 years old. You know, was and I point and shoot like a brownie or something. No, no, it was a dual reflex camera, mm -hmm. and I would take it out on the street with me in Flatbush, and I would just do arty things with it. And you know, it started me. It started me realizing that I like to look at the world and compose it in, and make compositions out of it through the framework of a camera, through the framework of a square or a rectangle that I was good at that and enjoyed it. And it became my sport. You know, I didn't know how to play baseball. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't even, I wasn't even comfortable going to summer camp. It, it threatened me. I thought they're all going to know that I'm not like them and I don't want to be in little league. And I'm afraid the ball will hit me smack in the middle of the face and I won't the fuck know what to do. So I just avoided it. And my, and my mother, my father was always out to lunch. And my father always had the newspaper in front of his head and face. That's what I saw of my father. He hid, the he hid from the world. He hid from the world and he spent his life reading. Reading. There were maybe four or five daily newspapers in New York back then in the fifties. Uh, and he read them all from cover to cover. And you know what? He never even discussed one article with me. He never said, hey, Stanley, I read this thing. No, it was all him. Close. End of story. So uh, thank God for my uncle because he took me to things like he took me on the Staten Island Ferry and brought me up to the captain of the ferry and talked to the captain and the captain let me honk the horn of the Staten Island. Ferry. You know, he got, it was my uncle who brought me to uh, the radio center of New York at the time and bought me my first transistor radio. Not my father, my uncle. Right. So when you, I mean, so as a amateur photographer myself, I will be out and just see something and look at it as if through the lens of a camera. Right. It makes me want then want to take a photo of it. Right. Or wish that I had. Right. Did you begin that at an early age yes, as well? Absolutely. And and I'm very into composition and I think that that's a, a big secret of photography is not just seeing the image but composing it in your mind as to 
what works in a compositional uh, way, you know, a visual. Right. I mean, I just grew up watching television and I love Lucy and looking at magazines and then movies followed by movie star magazines. And uh, that's sort of I got very slick at keeping all those images within my mind. You know, so from an early age, I knew what existed in contemporary American society at that time, what was allowed, what you could see and what you couldn't see. And at the same time, I realized that you could not see men. That was not allowed. Hey, there was a famous naked calendar of Marilyn Monroe, and it was famous. But was there a famous naked picture of a man anywhere in the United States of America? No. Why couldn't I? I didn't really have any men in my life so I could see them or even experience their bodies. I never, my father did not own a bathing suit. My mother did not own a bathing suit. They never took me to the beach. No one ever taught me how to swim. I was just on my own. And, uh, and I didn't even know what male bodies were like. And back then, when I first became aware of looking for pictures of men, what I found were, uh, you know, those vintage censored pictures in little magazines where someone would take a black magic marker and, and draw a fake posing strap over their dicks. And, and for a long time, I or like Bob Miser's yes, magazine. Right, correct, right, yeah. And for a long time when I was uh and I was young, you know, maybe I was, I don't know what, 10, 11, you know, 1955, 56 in there. Uh I actually thought that it was so bad to look at a naked man that cameras were made so that when you pointed one at a naked man, it automatically eliminated their penis. Oh, my God. I believe that. That was my entire experience. What about, you know, guys our age? And I should say for the audience's sake that you're 76 and I just turned 70. So we're pretty much comparable. You know, guys our age, are gay men, are noted for having poured through the Sears catalog, looking at the underwear show, et cetera. Absolutely. And uh, even when I was in art school, I went to Parsons School of Design. And that was in, uh, uh, I don't know, when Kennedy was shot. What, what's that? The 60s? 63. 63, right. And I remember I wanted to make a silkscreen print. I was into that in art school. And uh, what I made was I... I, I copied the torso of a man in jockey undershorts and made a silkscreen print of that in like blues and silvers or something because it was sort of pop art time, the beginning of. And Peter even, Max. Right, exactly. I used to have a Peter Max ashtray <laughs> and I used to put all my cigarette butts out in his word, love. Right until I realized what I was doing and then I threw it away, you know? Uh, Right, right. So even that, you know, having nobody in my class and there were other queer people in my class, men and women, uh, they would never, you know, it was like a giveaway for me to present to my class uh, a male torso in jockey underwear, like tidy whiteies. It's like saying, hey, homo, 
You know, I'm a homo. Why would I do that? Was there no life drawing, you know, life figure drawing? Yeah, always female. Oh, really? Always female models, old ladies, long breasts. I mean, sure. And I learned how to draw. And sure, there was. But never men. No, absolutely not. Oh, no, no, no. And which that's is the, Which is the genesis of our current you know, misogyny in terms of Instagram yeah. and other things where men's bodies still, are not allowed. Right. It's full circle. And I'm still, I'm back where I started now right. with Instagram. You can't see, you can't post, you can't look. Right. Not our community, no. Okay. And I'm, I'm in my 70s. And they're still telling me that what I'm doing is bad. And they don't want me to be part of their Instagram community. Right. So when did you first start photographing men? Uh, 1976, exactly. Uh, exactly. So you were about 30? Well, I, I, in, in the early, yeah, mid-30s, yeah, 30. I was about 30, correct. Mm -hmm. uh, in the mid-70s, I got a job as an editorial magazine art director. Uh, and uh, I, in Parsons, I took graphic design um, and uh, because I liked graphics. I liked posters and movie posters and how ads looked. And I, I liked that whole commercialness of it. I, I related to it more than uh, oil paintings in a museum. And, and, and again, it was, uh, you know, Andy Warhol was alive and doing Campbell Soup cans you know it was like i was very turned on by that and uh so i was in graphic design and, and then i had no job and i was at a friend's house one night and we were smoking weed and his phone rang and somebody who lived on the top floor of his building called him and said he needed an art director for his magazine and my friend turned to me and said could you be an art director and i went yeah because i just couldn't say no. And so that put me in this whole other world of making money. And as an art director, you get people, and especially an editorial art director, that people want to have their work published in magazines and books. So people from all over the world, men and women, illustrators and photographers would make appointments with me daily and show me their work. And this is a, a famous Stanley story. Uh, if they came and they were straight men and they had these portfolios, mid seventies of, you know, gorgeous black and white prints, big 16 by 20 prints of, of, of their photos, they would always be photos of women, always women with bathing suits and women with red lipstick and women with liquor bottles and women in automobiles and their girlfriends, always, always, always. And if they were gay photographers who came and showed me their work, well, guess what? The pictures were always more pictures of more women. Because they thought that's what would sell. That's it. That's it. There was no place to, there was just nothing. There was no way to even incorporate looking at men, even in advertising in that time that right. I grew up. It just wasn't, you know? And so uh, after I got my Nikon in 1976, I realized that I didn't think the world needed me to be yet 
another gay man who wanted to photograph women's fashion and ladies in dresses and lipstick and jewelry. I had this hunger to photograph men, hunger to look at men, see them, interact with them. And, uh, and there wasn't much of that going on on any level. Back then, I think Dwayne Michaels was the only photographer I had even heard of who had the, the, the gall, the nerve to incorporate gorgeous men in some of his very, uh, his photos were very uh, kind of sequential. There'd be, you know, a photo of a man and sitting at a table and it would show him writing something or drawing something. And then there'd be another photo of the next sequence of the man. And sometimes the man would not have his shirt on. That was huge. I remember just going, oh, thank God for this guy, Dwayne Michaels, whoever he is. Right. And now, should I have heard of him today? Oh, you should have. He's still alive. Yeah, you should have. But, you know, he's. He's he's up there, you know. Dwayne Michaels is in um, every, uh, you know, mu you know, good photographic museum and collection. I'm sure there is, right, right. He's various that you know. He's in fact, I don't want to talk about Dwayne Michaels really. He's great, and what he did was great, and he was innovative, and that was that was it for him. So you began taking them because as an art director, you had more control over what? Well, I didn't want to, I, you know, I wanted to take pictures. I realized by 1976 that I didn't want to just design other people's pictures mm -hmm. or place them in magazines or put them on covers. I wanted my own pictures. Right. And I wanted to take my own pictures of what I saw and what I desired and what resonated with me. And, uh, and that was just really important for me to do that. And by that point, I was out, you know, in terms of out, I don't mean that I was not hiding that I was gay, but I was functioning in the gay world in the West Village. And I had gay friends and who also lived in the West Village. And we hung out and we were honest and open with each other. And sometimes it was sexual and sometimes it was just about love and respect for each other and needing each other to be as friends and support. And so I wound up all of a sudden for the first time in my entire life, finding myself in rooms with naked gay men. I had never seen that before. I hadn't been there before. I hadn't witnessed it. Were they parties with sex as an explicit part of the... Sometimes, 50-50, it was all pretty casual. You know, you could be walking down the street and meet somebody and be in their bedroom in 20 minutes and, you know, and... Well, people, young gay men particular day, with everything being done on apps and phones, don't understand that the art of cruising... Well, they, everything was firsthand. Right. Everything was, I see you, you see me. Is there any connection? I look at your eyes or I don't look at your eyes. You look at mine or you don't. You walk past me, I walk past you. Turn around. Does one of us turn around? If we both turn around, then we're talking the same language. Right. So it was pretty easy, and it was easy, especially in the West Village then, because that's who was there. We had, there were all of a sudden, there were public streets where we could find each other that we were sort of allowed to be in in New York City. Because even then, you know, the, uh, the attitude about 
uh, gay men was, uh, we don't want to hear them and we don't want to see them. You know, they're all right, but we don't want to see them. We don't want to see them holding hands. We don't want to see them kissing. We don't want to hear them day or night. We don't want them on our block. We don't want them. So when things like Christopher Street materialized, uh, that was a place we could go that was not going to have straight people who were going to call the police and report us for being uh, not... not Our, Ourselves. Right. Correct. Right. A loitering yeah. as ourselves. Yeah. Right. So would you describe for our audience, particularly those that are not as old as we are and don't have first-hand experience. It's a lot of them. It's mostly them now. Don't have first-hand experience. What was the gay demimond like back then? What did it feel like? How did it operate? Oh, I, different about it? Well, you know, uh, I always remember that song at the time. I'm in with the in-crowd. I go where the in-crowd goes. Or it was this other song I used to like, Walking in Sunshine. Uh you know, for a while there, you know, uh, I, I, I became, because we all had to meet on the street, because if you stayed home, you didn't meet anybody, uh, you all, and there were, there was no computer world. If you wanted to meet somebody or be friends with people, you had to go out and you had to have a place that you frequented. For some people, that was a bar. For me, it was the street. I didn't like hanging out in bars and I was young. It, I didn't really have money to spend on drinking all night and standing in a smoke filled room uh, in hopes that I would be able to make small conversation with people or someone would be attracted in me enough to say hello or talk to me. That was sort of arduous, but on the street, since I was a New York city native, I was very comfortable. I was always comfortable. I know this city. You know, I know the the rules. I know what what, what I could get away with. So the uh, the gay demi mode, I'm not really sure what that means, but what it meant to me at a certain time, well that was that I had these two friends. I had these friends Philip Beard and Michael Nomad Greenhorn and they were boyfriends. And um they both had very simple tattoos back then, and they both had a barber shop on Christopher Street. It started out being called the Christopher Street Barber Shop, and people, gay people, gay because would walk in there and get their hair cut. And Philip and Michael were great at it. <coughs> and um, while I was still an art director. I met a lot of artists. I met not a lot, but I'd say a handful of artists, men and women, who were recent art school graduates, and they weren't supporting themselves as artists. They couldn't. And so I became friends with one or two contemporaries, people my age, who were doing uh, tattoo work in New York City. And then- To make a living. To make a living. But their, uh, their, 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 what made them special was that they were artists from the get-go. They weren't from a traditional tattoo flash design uh, background. 
they were able to offer people and gay men and gay women customized designs and 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 also have their bodies tattooed in secret places on that the, on their bodies secret tattoos that people would only know about when you were naked and they chose to reveal these parts of their bodies and and it was all very exciting to me it's still around 1976 and i was like hey you mean there's this world of men walking around with these tattoo designs under their clothes straight men gay men how are we supposed to see that or know that or know anything about that and you know in 1976 or 77 when i started looking for tattoo information, tattoo photos here in New York City, big, you know, New York City. In all of New York City, there was one book available, one called Art, Sex, and Symbol, and it was from the 40s, and it was only available at the Gotham Book Mart in Midtown, and that was it, because tattooing was illegal here, you know? So so these friends of mine... Um, 15 years ago, maybe Yeah, more, much more recently. So there were these people of mine, the friends of mine who were doing private tattoo work from their apartments and that illegality of it had a huge cachet. It had, it, it was, that was the demi monde that I was in this world of mixed sexuality, doing something from your house that was considered illegal mm-hmm. in New York. Uh, and 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 also customizing your body, eroticizing your body in ways that you couldn't walk into a straight tattoo. So you began photographing. Yes, him? right. That became my my big lead into photographing men. And one of my friends was a really great tattoo artist, a female painter, and she would give me lists of the names and numbers of incredible people that she had done incredible things with that that were not uh, viewable on their bodies that weren't particularly on their arms right you know and and were I all of them receptive when you reached out to them 90% of them yeah because there was no nobody like me and nobody interested in this is new york city and nobody's interested you know how long did it take to develop a reputation in that circle well for me or for the tattoo artists you know uh, you for me uh, pretty quickly because still no one was doing it except me. And, uh, it wasn't something people even talked about. And, uh, you know, uh, it was clandestine. And, and, and then there was this other side of tattooed men who had just spent thousands of dollars, uh, on, uh, customizing their body in secret ways and they didn't necessarily want to have pictures circulating of their uniqueness, you know, because they wanted to be special and they didn't want other people to copy what they had done on their bodies. So, you know, it was always, I had to be really sincere with them and I had to have had the endorsement of the tattoo artists who why would they allow you to photograph them unless you weren't going to show that to other people because they wanted it to be kept secret correct right and then having a tattoo put somewhere on your body anywhere you name it your ass u.s grade a beef 
or around your nipple or wherever, let alone over your dick, uh, was it was very exotic. I mean, most of the world didn't have any tattoos. The tattoos that men had back then were going to be little devils with pitchforks. And mom. And mom. Or this was a big one, an eagle. <laughs> an eagle. I remember one night standing in front of a gay bar at three in the morning and watching these men come out and seeing eagle on arm, eagle on arm, eagle on arm, and thinking, why are they all getting eagles? What? What? Did they go to the eagle bar? Is that it? What is it about that? You know, I never really found out. But then as I learn more about the history of tattooing, and I learn more about that there is a direct storyline about uh, birds, birds of, let's call eagles birds, birds and the art of tattooing in throughout the, I'd say, 19th century through early 20th century, that getting bird tattoos on you was a way of identifying you being a homosexual. Oh, wow. Right. Correct. Right. And that then gay tattoo artists often took tattoo bird names like Phil Sparrow, Cliff Raven, names like that. Right. And that was an underground thing. So is that Demimond? I don't know. Yeah, very definitely. It's, okay. it's, a, it's kind of a Demimond within a Demimond. Correct. Right, right, uh, right. So how did you get from that point? Well, there was a point where I realized, hey, it's not just the tattoo that I'm interested in. It's the man. You know, I mean, I had experiences back then where I, you know, I would be meet in some way, some incredible tattooed freak. You know, people used to have cards. I met some guy once who gave me his card. and He, he had his name on it and it said that he was a tattoo enthusiast. Right. And and I would meet people like this and then I would follow up and I I would have uh, I would have encounters with men that would like be. Yeah, I'll take my clothes off and let you photograph me only if we have sex. And so, yes, of course, I was hungry for the sex and I was hungry to see these customized bodies in the world where there were none. Every Tom, Dick and Harry did not have a tattooed arm sleeve right. at all, period, the end. No, right. Not in this deck of the woods. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, I was really involved in that for years and it, it was, you know, it, it, it bordered between fine art performances that involved tattooing and uh, and the eroticism of secret body tattoos and customizing your body. And then my friend Michael Greenhorn Nomad, who I mentioned earlier, who had been a barber, well, he inherited tattoo equipment from somebody and he started uh, teaching himself how to tattoo men. And Michael was very attractive. He was British and very wonderful and sexy, and nobody met him that didn't fall for him on some level. He was not, he wasn't a cliche anything. He was really one of a kind. And, and then he found very quickly that men of all ages would pay him whatever he asked for to have him 
have him work on their bodies for hours and hours and hours. So, you know, some retiree or some exec somewhere would just be thrilled that for the next whatever, 30 hours of their life over different days, uh, Michael's hands were going to be on them with a needle and they were going to be transformed into erotic beings, secret erotic beings. So, uh, you know. So you took these, how long would you say that period lasted? I did till around, you know, uh, till the early 80s. So five to 10 years. Yeah, more like five years. I just outgrew it a lot because I really started to realize when I had to talk and deal with all these tattooed guys. And then also I was not just relying on my friends to give me lists of who their clients were, but I would see a tattooed arm on the street in the West Village. And I would think, well, there's probably more there. And I would talk to them. And I got really, really good at it. And good wasn't about fooling them. It was introducing myself to them, getting paying attention to them, admiring what they had on their arm. Speaking or, the same language. Correct. Right. So very often, I, I met somebody once on Thompson Street in Soho, and maybe within 12 minutes, he took me to the roof of his apartment where he took all his clothes off and showed me his incredibly tattooed body. And yes, I had my camera. And yes, I had color film. Right. You know, I was really, really smooth with it because I was honest with them. Sure. I wasn't approaching them say, thinking, oh, I really want to have sex with you. Authenticity no. is sexy. That's totally right. Exactly. And it became very powerful for me. And people used to say to me, hey, Stanley, can I hang out with you this afternoon and watch how you do it? No. Right. No, I don't need an audience. No, thank you. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, I got very good at, at, at making men comfortable with me in a very honest way, and also knowing that my point was that I wasn't looking for sex with them. I was looking to do this creative thing, my vision. I had my vision. But sometimes I, I, the rapport and the connection. Absolutely, absolutely, an unforgettable, yeah. uh, in an unforgettable way. And, and, and many men are, you know, I'm sure all gay men still have this experience that you can meet somebody and have an incredible experience with them. And then you never encounter them again for a minute in your life ever again, right. or they're somewhere else. It's funny, you know, people are always say, I, I post some picture of some guy I took 40 years ago on Instagram. And then someone will write me and say, well, do you know where he is now? And I think, what the fuck? At the same time, let me ask if your experience is like mine, because I've taken these photos of people, not all naked, not all tattooed. Oftentimes after I've posted them, somebody themselves will contact me Absolutely. or someone will contact them and say, hey, your photo's Absolutely. here and they'll get in touch with me. Right? Absolutely. And and throughout these 40 years uh, that I've been taking pictures of men, um, I get constant feedback from people I barely remember right. that maybe I spent two hours with once. Right. And the feedback is always positive and great. And it's like, hey, Stanley, you know, you said something to me back then while we were taking pictures that changed my life or that I never forgot. And I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> 
really, yeah. truly, you know, but I, I tend to have left people, you know, it was always, I always thought, you know, this is a dicey thing to get men out of their clothes and photograph them and, and have it all smooth and know that I'm yeah, doing this. As you believed in it, that's what made it work. Yes. And also I wasn't doing it just because I wanted to look at their picture then and then masturbate. Right. No, I was doing it because I wanted to take this history of my vision in front of me right. that I wanted to record. I wanted to make images using men. And, and still, that was still banned from our society. I always remember watching TV, you know, and, and they would come on the uh, laundry detergent ad for Tide or something, right? And there would be the housewife in front of the washing machine and the husband in a dirty white t-shirt. And she'd say, gee, you really, you know, we got to wash that t-shirt. And there'd be a little zing noise. And all of a sudden, he would never have taken it off. Just the dirty t-shirt would zing into a white t-shirt. Like no one even took their shirt off right. then. It was impossible in our society to see men right. without being, it could be, it, without it being a loaded issue. You know, no pun intended. Correct. <laughs> Here I am in this world of um, men. That was the point I was going to make about being honest and upfront. You know, I everyone I ever photographed for 40 years, I asked to sign my model rollers because I told them I'm doing this because I want to be able to show these photos right. in, in, a, in a fine art context. You know, I want these out there. I'm not doing these to just jerk off in my bedroom. Right. So that was very, uh, I'm glad I've always had that attitude. And then when I just started photographing men in general and starting in the 80s, because I needed to support myself and I could photograph naked men pretty easily in New York and sell them to gay magazines. And there were gay magazines all around the world. And I sold to almost every publisher there was in the 80s. Did you work directly for the magazine or you took the photos and then approached the magazine? Correct. You take the photos and then you show them to different magazines. And if the mail is, uh, you know, of interest to them, then they'll buy the set. And for me, then, then uh, that was always based on slides, color slides, because all the reproduction and and remember, I come from graphic design, right. right? So I was pretty familiar with this. And I quickly began, I yes, it was so easy to photograph dicks and assholes. So easy. No problem at all. But I wanted always to be more than that. I wanted to transcend that. So when I would do a shoot with anybody, I would work at... How can I see these men in an erotic way that isn't 42nd Street porn? Right. That surely we can look at men and gay men can look at each other and the world can look at men that without their clothes on, that it's not going to be porn. Trashy. That's right. It's not going to be cheap or lewd or cliche or porn. So I would work with these guys and, you know, I, I could see the back of somebody's neck and take a very sexy picture of them, you know, you name it. So I got really good at that. And then I would include those images in photo sets that I would present to. And would they publish them too? Absolutely not. Yeah. 
no interest whatsoever. Yeah. They picked the same lousy eight dick and assholes right. forever. And that's how I survived in the nude. I recently photographed somebody in the nude. I, I do it occasionally as a hobby. I have not used model releases and I'm going to going forward for various reasons. But I discovered and recognized something that I hadn't thought about before. It was a, it was a very attractive man. I didn't really have any sexual interest in him. I was, but I had a sexual charge from the trust I built up. Correct. From the fact that I was being allowed and given this power Correct. to do what I wanted with Absolutely. this person and they, and they trusted right. you. Right, right. Trust, that's a really important yeah. thing in all relationships between anybody and, and somebody else. Right. Right. But that that was what excited me. Yeah. Was that I, me this too. model was in my hand to right. do what I wanted with right. for the purposes of these products. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, up until the recentness of cell phones, you had to really know a photographer if you wanted a picture of yourself. Right. You know, and 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 gay men have always wanted to see their bodies at this age or that age or whatever, uh, or have something to send someone in a letter. This is who I am. And there was simply no way to do that unless you actually knew a competent photographer. Who could develop for you. That's right. Right. So that's what I did. And I was pretty unique, really. And, they, and, and very unique people found me through word of mouth, through people I photographed, would then tell somebody else, a friend of theirs who was magnificent, they should call me and they would, you know? So that's the beginning of me as a photographer. Well, you raise a question I was going to ask later when you compare today when everybody has a camera in their hand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What do you think of photography now versus back in the day when it wasn't so easy? Oh, that's a bad question. Nothing. <laughs> Almost nothing. Yeah. Nothing. I think that, I mean, it's great. You know, the internet and the whole digital age is great where it's great and really shitty where it's shitty, yeah. you know? So um, everybody now, especially since they thought of this concept of selfies, where I can look at my own camera in my own hands and see how I look and make just the right face and put my lips in just the right big fat cock-sucking position so you think I'm this hot stud. That Now they're all used to looking at themselves. And to them, they in control of looking at themselves. That's it. That's photography today. So what That's used it. to be unaffected beauty is now become doctored beauty. Doctored, controlled, customized, right. and and uh, and that's it. That's the standard now, right? right? Everybody wants the uh, icon of themselves the way they created it, and and you know a photo is accurate. Every photograph is accurate, but photographs are not the truth. They're just an accurate well, it's like, millisecond. It's like history. Correct. That's all it is, right? Have you, have you noticed the, the following trend? I won't mention names, but there are some people. <laughs> you can. <laughs> there were some young men who I either met or knew or saw on TV when they were early in whatever their careers were. And the naturalness which they exhibited. So sexy. And, and the pure beauty. Right, right. And as time goes on, and they become influencers. Right. And they develop 
followings and audiences of a million or two million. Right. It's become so plastic. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. I know there's some guy in New York that um, I've been photo- I photographed maybe for the last 15 to 20 years. And in maybe his first month here in New York, uh, we met somehow. I don't really recall the exact way we met. But when he came to my studio and I took pictures of him, maybe for the first time or maybe every time. I remember once he was here and he said to me, you know, Stanley, having this experience with you, that's the reason I came to New York City. You know, so and so now it's 15, 20 years later and the guy has hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and he's learned how to selfie himself to death. He can selfie himself in his red bedroom or in his leather. But you don't recognize in him the young man that you... Oh, he's gone. No, it's all pose, 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 pose. There's no hint of any truth there at all anymore. And, you know, I still like him. I'm still his friend, but I don't want to photograph him anymore. Nor does he want or need me to record him anymore. And, And, you know, he's at this point now, right, with, you know... Hundreds of thousands of photographs of him looking wonderful and sexy and hot out there and and tens more thousands of followers who know his name by his name. The last time I talked to him, you know what? He was like, I'm out. I'm over it. I don't care anymore. Bored. The plastic, totally bored. the plastic starts to bore even him. Totally bored. Yeah. Right. And when I see his life in the pictures, he, it's the same life. He's still living in the same small apartment with the same small two cats. Wow. That's it. Right. I could give you more details about him, yeah. but I'll stop there. But he's on view in a bar in New York. Uh for decades now and he's kind of famous and you know when you go to a bar and the bartender is nice a gay bar and attractive sometimes you talk to them because maybe nobody else will even talk to you so i mean he's still here and gorgeous you know but even he has just wiped himself out over the whole topic so you've had a checkered relationship with censors yes you want to tell us a little bit about that well, then versus now? Well, censors, you know, for me, censors started back when I was a child. And I thought, why can't you look at a naked, a picture of a naked man? Why can't I see what, why? I, I, don't, I can't even touch them in real life. I can't even have them. I had an older brother who was nine years older than me. You know what? I never, ever, ever succeeded in pulling his pajama bottoms down. Not ever, not once. Never showered in front of you? No, absolutely not. Just not that. This is the family where the parents didn't even own bathing suits? Yeah. Okay, right. So, you know, uh, I remember when when I first started getting, having the, the power to send away in catalogs for little things, magazines, or started buying the first... Okay primal kind of gay magazines and all of a sudden i found that my name became on a mail was on a mailing list in the mailing list every two weeks or so i'd get a sealed white envelope uh and my parents wouldn't 
mess with it or open it. And I'd open it and it would be a kind of one sheet folded into three uh, folds and to fit in this legal size, this, you know, regular white envelope. And I'd open it up and it would be uh, like the whole page would be covered in pink ink. And it would be little mini, mini one inch high mail nudes, really tiny, tiny. And it was sort of like, here are the samples and you could order these pictures from us. Or the whole page would be in like crude, cheap blue ink or purple ink. How did that come to you in the mail? I don't quite remember. I mean, I must have sent away for something once. You know, I remember censorship is, a, is a, you know, I'm sorry if I veer away. Uh, in the late 60s, I lived in a five-room apartment on 3rd Avenue by myself, and I could afford it. I remember seeing an ad that said, magazines of the pictures you're not allowed to see of movie stars. Buy this magazine, and we'll send you, you know, these naked or near-naked pictures of, you know, Elvis Presley in his jockey shorts. Or, you know, we claim this is, you know, uh, some movie star from the 30s naked in a tree or something like that. And I, I remember I sent away for it. Why? Because it's me, because I relate to pictures and magazines. And, and one day I'm in my apartment and, 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 and the bell rings. And, and there was a long hallway from my apartment to the front door of my apartment. And by the time I got to the front door and opened my front door, there was the magazine hanging from a wire coat hanger in front of my door with the word faggot written over it. Oh, my God. And it was from the uh, landlady. She always she sneered your- at me. Yes, she always sneered at me. She, 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 I don't, you know, I, I, I remember her name to this day. You know, and she just sneered at me and always it was nobody but her, you know, and she knew she could do this thing and steal the magazine. The mailboxes were right there down with her front door. And uh, you ever think of getting a private P.O. box? Well, I have over the years, but yeah, but I I don't really need that anymore. Sure. But so, you know, uh, censorship (laughs) all my life, it's been... uh, censored even when I first started to think I could be an out gay photographer. What's wrong with being a gay photographer? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm a great photographer. Why can't I just be an open out photographer? Why do I have to be embarrassed or ashamed that I photograph men, that I look at men and I make art with men? What is wrong with that? You know? And uh, I never felt there anything was wrong with that. To tell you the truth, I mean, you know, I I was here in Stonewall, you know. I mean, I've always been here, right? What's wrong with that, right? Well, you didn't you also have a lot of the photos you sent off to be developed? Oh yeah, well, you want that story about sure, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I used to love this one film, Kodachrome sixty four. It was just the richest color, you know, and only Kodak had the ability to develop that film. And I would often bring it into a lab that was, you know, an established lab. And, you know, a few days later, I'd go pick it up and they'd 
hand me the envelope with the box of slides inside, and I'd pay whatever it was, $9.95, whatever. And then I'd open the envelope, and the box would be hollow and empty. And there'd be nothing but slide mounts in the box because people at Kodak in Rochester, New York, didn't like me and what I was doing. And how often did it always get interrupted like that? Or No, no, it was just spin the wheel of fortune. Right. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. But if I stopped using Kodachrome and I started using Ektachrome, then anybody could develop that film and it right. became easier. Right. So here we are today, mm -hmm. 50 years later, mm -hmm. and you and I are both on Instagram. Correct. We both had our account disabled by Instagram. Correct. My same account, reason. Right. My account with 35,000 followers who are all saying this is incredible history, Stanley, incredible art, doesn't mean a thing to Instagram. Right. Here we are. Right. Right. Someone just told me, I don't know if it's true, that apparently their algorithms, their bots, are not capable of measuring skin surface visibility on black and white photos. So they can't censor the black and white uh -huh. in the same way they censor the color. Have you heard that? No, but because I'm sure I've had pictures removed of both color and black and white. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, I, I really have no idea what their algorithms are about, but their algorithms are clearly... Homophobically homo programmed. Absolutely, right. And, and it's also so arbitrary to me, you know, because... Part of them is like, no problem with any porn at all, as long as it's a drawing or a painting, right? People publish, have, have Instagram feeds with like, you know, art history stuff and, and individual porn, gay porn, straight porn, close-ups of dicks and vaginas, as long as it's a drawing, that doesn't bother them in the least. That doesn't bother their Instagram community standards in the least. A drawing, but a photograph. Also, there's a that crosses their line. There's a huge misogyny. Absolutely. And sexism. Absolutely. The female body can be objectified. Absolutely. Without any without any problem. It's often it's been my case to, to in in been the case where I'll like just look up a hashtag. And if the hashtag is not, uh, all the hashtags I put, I've gone, I've used the word gay in them to keep them specific. Right. Right. But if I just, you know, I would say gay sneakers, right? I would say gay Levi's, whatever, right? But if I just looked up sneakers, I'd wind up looking at, hundreds and thousands of pictures of women's feet in sneakers. Right. Right? So by labeling it gay so that they don't get offended, that puts them on their watch list. Then I'm then now the haters of the world and right. the far right who are now wanting to you know crash pride celebrations can find me easy as pie. Well it's even worse is that I've noticed like some of these same influence which we're talking about. Maybe yeah. they're maybe they're fitness instructors. Right. They're really oh, good looking guys. There's a million of them. They'll show a lot of ass. Oh, they'll push their asses in your and it's face. okay because they're not gay sites. Correct. Correct. How many times have you seen these huge male butts going up and down, exercising in your face? You can smell the photos and there's no problem with that. Right. Right. 
right? But me, uh, a 40-year-old photograph of uh, the back of, you know, partial nudity. I have never in the four to 5,000 images I've put of mine, original images on Instagram, ever, ever, ever put an image with a dick in it, ever. Yet I've been penalized, warned, you know, I've, the problem is that you look at their guidelines and they're written so broadly that they can technically exclude wherever they want. Correct. They've said that they've removed my pictures for bullying. Bullying? Yeah. Right. Okay. Got it. Or solicitation. That's right. I got one last week, sexual solicitation. And this, this, well, that's part of our today reality. Are you going to talk to a, a robot? Yeah. This, somebody said to me, well, can't you call them there and let no them know? There's no, nothing. Right. They don't give a shit. It's all about their ability to monetize their platform. Well, advertising agencies are the clients, not the users. That's right. Exactly. Right. So, so how do you plan to proceed going forward? I don't. I was almost ready to totally walk away right. this week, to tell you the truth. I, I, I was going to discuss this with you, except it all changed this morning. But last week, I got this idea. I thought, you know what? I'm tired of them threatening me, you know, and because now I'm on my next Instagram account and it's just called Stanley.Stellar2. And I don't have 35,000 followers. And I have 5,000 followers. So you have to recreate that, which takes years. Uh, it took me five years to get to the 35 because I didn't buy commercial, right. uh, you know, following this. Right. I mean, I know some guys who are, they're decent photographers, but did they really have 200,000 followers? You know, right. So, but that's their business, okay? But the other but, problem is there are a lot of people who are making very successful livings off these pages and suddenly they're removed. Correct. For no right. good reason. Correct. And they, and you, and, and the, you can't even talk to them. Right. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm here last weekend and I get this idea. Okay, you know what? I'm really tired of doing the same thing and being punished in the same way because I'm still never going to put things that I knowingly think break their community rules. Right. And then I thought, you know, Stanley, I've been photographing this event in New York City called Folsom Street East since the late 1990s. And I have year by year by year beautiful photographs through my designed vision of Folsom Street East. Most of them never seen because there's been no context for anyone to want to publish them or be seen in them even, you know? Uh, and, And so I thought, you know, I could just do my own new set, totally new thing and call it Stellar.FSE. Folsom Street East, right? So it's like a few days ago this happened to me. So I set it up. I write it in as an alternate account, another account. And when I go back to look for Stanley.Stellar2, it's frozen. Again, it's disabled. While I was setting up a new alternate site, Stanley.Stellar2 became disabled for the last five days. And, but you got it back this morning, this morning. I don't know how I, Did you, you know, they do this thing, shake, shake your, shake your phone problem. and report. So for four days in a row, I said, what happened? I can't, I can't post there now. Even it's my next site. What, what help me? 
because there's nobody to talk to. Did you get an email eventually saying? No, no, or, no, no, no. I, I get emails saying we apologize. We, a mistake was made. And right. your, your page is Lucky you. No, no, no. Sorry no, for no. the inconvenience. No, I just sat here on the sofa this morning and went, oh, now when I press Instagram, that comes back. Before, when I was pressing Instagram for the last four days, the little Instagram button on my phone, all I got was stellar Folsom Streetings, which has nothing posted on it whatsoever, right? right? And I was like, how did this happen? So basically, it's a Kafka-esque world. Right? Yeah, thank you. Right. So at this point, before this morning, I was thinking, you know, I'm ready to just walk away from Instagram right. entirely. The problem is there's no other platform. I, exactly. They say Twitter, put yourself on Twitter. Well, that's a different fucking world. Plus, I, Elon Musk may own it and end up taking it that right away. Right. And, and, and you know, uh, being on Instagram, you get exposed to your 5,000 followers or your exactly. 35,000 followers. Being on Twitter, somebody has to be looking for you right. and they have to find you through somebody else's, you know, hustler's porn site of, Hey, Twitter, you can watch me get fucked here on Twitter, right? right? And then you can join my private group on whatever that is, you know? Uh, what's it called? You know, uh, fans only. Yeah, oh, uh, only fans. That's what it's all about. Right. Monetizing it. That's fucking what it's all about, right? If you like this little clip here, right. uh, then join my only fans. That's Twitter. So I, what am I going to go there? Twitter is kind of crude. Very, right. And then, but you know, I kept getting these, uh, hey, go to Twitter, you know, they won't censor you, will you? They won't see me either. Uh, what I've done, I do have a Twitter. I set it up <laughs> and I encountered problems with my Instagram, but I only, what I'll do is I'll post the photos that I know I can't put Correct. on, on Correct. Instagram on Twitter. And then Correct. on the Instagram, I'll tell people for the real photo, go, there. go to Twitter. Right. And on Twitter, if you want to read the narrative that accompanies this, go to Facebook, go to Instagram, but it's a lot of work. Yeah, so for 40 years, I have been fighting against being a pornographer. Right. Any asshole with a camera or a cell phone can take a picture of a dick. Right. You don't need to have anything but that. Right. You can look at your own dick and go click. Right. You know, I don't need to add to that well of consciousness of imagery. But what you're saying is, unfortunately, the world does not recognize artistic Correct. talent, whether if there's a dick involved. Correct. And, 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 and the world is used to just now selfies. That's what it all means to them. It doesn't go beyond it. Yeah. You know? So what's the solution? I don't have one anymore. Yeah. Right. As you know, I was thinking, well, you know, uh, you're going to come here and you've had experience with them. Maybe I can ask you if you know some way I could get through to them to like get back my account. I'll, I'll share you what I know later, but well, yeah, not that but, you but need it, it right but now. But it happened instantly but for some reason this morning. Ultimately, you and I need to find a dozen other people like us oh. how to create something where we all have a critical mass and we bring it to an audience and we all share. Correct. Correct. Or, you know, for, I, I was thinking, you know, how can it, how can I get in touch with like the New York Times, uh, you know, tech people who might do an article and it's, I'm sure it's already been done about Instagram's homophobia. Yeah. Right. I, I had actually planned and it was organizing a campaign to uh, have everyone post at the same time on the same day, the same photos that had been deleted among all of us that were not offensive. Right. 
to, to at least get publicity. For right, them, absolutely. Right? I've also experienced, and this is a real joke on at Meta, at Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. But they've removed pictures that are just beautiful pictures, not genital pictures in any way. And they've removed them and punished me and they keep a record of all the offenses. And then once or twice I've gone back and posted the same photo on my boring Facebook page. And all those photos are still there. I created a second Instagram page, posted the ones that were deleted on it, and it's still okay. So, okay. So then what, what to do? Talk about Kafka's world. You know, uh, I can't, I can't bang my head against the wall anymore about it's random that. and arbitrary and unfair. Correct. And there's no redress. Correct. Totally correct. So in the end, it makes me want to feel like walking away from the whole. But we still thing. need a communal place to show our. Absolutely, power. absolutely, because I, part of why I've done so well in the last five to ten years is that I'm not unknown anymore. Right. Right. I mean, I used to being a gay photographer, I was in isolation. You know, they knew all the gay fashion photographers. Right. You know, I'm not I'm not going to mention his name, you know, who, you know, does models with Aryan hairstyles right. in GQ. Yeah. Right. Who pretends he's straight. Yeah. Right. Who's not. Well, we're not. I don't think we're going to unfortunately come up with a solution today, but we really should be looking for one. Right. Well, we should be, but you know what? I paid my dues already. Yeah. I really have. I I was a pioneer. Now there are all these. You know, the young gay photographers contact me all the time. Uh, I know a a wonderful gay photographer in Mexico, who writes these tributes to me about him being a boy in high school and seeing my name on pictures that he swooned over and not. Porn magazine pictures. Right, right. Right. And and now he's got a hundred thousand followers on Instagram and he's learned what to do. Right. And I love him. He's great. He came here, he visited me. We're friends. We're great, right. you know. So there's legions of young men who have are feel fine about being who gay, you inspired. Who I inspired, who feel fine about being open gay photographers. Well, basically, it sounds like no matter how much we think we've advanced as a civilization, we're going to encounter the same headwinds Always in terms of yeah. being accepted for who we are and what we are attracted Isn't to. Isn't that shocking? Yeah. That it's full circle to me that I have to cover now and people leave comments like, why are you putting a black box over this? What's wrong with you, Stanley? Because I don't want to disappear. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. It's it's just there's a no win. It's a no win well, situation. You know, for for our audience's sake, you know, we both with different histories, different ways to where we are today, find ourselves meeting with similar photos and similar experiences. The irony is, is incredible. And so it's yeah. really great to have had the opportunity to meet you, get to know you. I know now that we're oh, continue Mike, having it. Yeah, around. yeah, yeah. You and I have so many uh things in common. And loves in common yeah. of things that I, we don't see anything wrong with. Right. Right. There's nothing wrong. There's with nothing it. wrong with it. Right. I mean, I live a pretty normal life. I must say to use that boring word, right. you know, but I mean, my life is, you know, I am with the same man for 50 years. And yet we're still judged by people who have power over us. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, not only that, but I'm someone who forged this field of being an open 
gay photographer. And I'm also someone who lived through the AIDS years. Yeah, we didn't mention that. We didn't talk about that one at all, uh, yeah. baby. So I'm the rarest of the rare. How many friends would you say you had? That All of them. Yeah. All of them. Uh, 200. Yeah. Right. It didn't stop. It went right through the 80s and it continued through the 90s. And now any men I know uh, through social things, like I used to be uh, connected to the Leslie Lohman Museum, they're all close to my age and they're all busy taking 20 pills a day. And they're all skinny and they're all have health issues, you know, and uh, it's just... You know, yeah, it, I, I feel like I dodged a bullet. I don't know uh, exactly. Why. I did too. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I do know why. You know, I just stopped going out there and being promiscuous for fifteen to twenty years. Yeah, I, I I'm careful usually not to say that because then I get excoriated for being uh, for, for using for being the word mental. Oh, it's not. No, be promiscuous as you want. But how did I survive? That's how I survived. Right. There was no other way. Same here. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure. We'll continue this. It's been a mouthful, hasn't it? Yeah. Right. Well, we both we both enjoyed a conversation, shall I say? Well, yeah, and I think that there are t topics we didn't even get to yet. So maybe we'll have to my, do part two of this. Well, you know, you'll be back in New York sometime. I will. Regular. And and I'm really happy that you've bitten off and found something that is so appropriate and right for you to be involved in right now. Even your ability to focus in on some of these issues, the issue, the generational issues, uh, are, it's beautiful because why? Nobody else is doing it. And following on your comments about when you started in the tattoo industry and not to pat myself on the back, but because I share it all, warts and all, there's an authenticity that comes through and that's what people are responding to. So if you or I both or either have a message for our audience, it's when you find something that you enjoy and you embrace it and show every bit of it, irrespective of how popular or unpopular it is, ultimately in the long run, you're probably going to have better results and a happier life because you've been true to yourself. Right. And I have. And I am. And, and now I'm Stanley Stiller, the legend. I know. <laughs> and I'm happy about that. That's good. Well, it's nice that I've gotten to know Stanley Stiller, the legend, as well as the man. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much. Dude. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Lay.